Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 8.51 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It's the 16th of June, 2021. This is episode 439 of Bitcoin. And I think there's a problem with my Apple iTunes. Apparently, my my Apple iTunes has not been getting new shows from my RSS feed propagated to it. And I've been trying to log into where I can look at that. And there's all kinds of weirdness going on. No, I, I don't think that I'm hacked. I just, I think something happened over at Apple and I'm going to have to go through the proper procedures to figure out WTF is going on, bro. So I, I don't know. The, the The thing was brought to my attention by, uh, let's see, who was it? Oh, good God. One of one of my bros, one of my bro- oh where'd he go where'd he go? It is in, oh snake snake Bitkin one of my bros uh, asked me if there weren't any pods this week and of course I did one on Monday and and, and yesterday and I just on the off chance that something was going on I looked over at iTunes and lo and behold uh, that hadn't gotten propagated to since last Friday. <clears throat> I do not know what's going on. I'm looking into it. Uh, if for whatever reason you're listening to me on iTunes, you're not going to be hearing this. That's kind of weird. Um, thank God there are several other uh, podcast apps out there that do seem to be getting the feed because I'm not seeing I'm not seeing a major decrease in my numbers for the last couple of days. Anyway, I'm on it. I'm looking at it. It's going to take some time because I'm dealing with Apple here and God only knows where that's going to lead. Anyway, also in other news, BTC Sessions has a couple of doppelgangers that you should know about. Uh, BTC Sessions is really good dude. Okay, so let's spell his name correctly. Uh, And just so you know why he's a really good dude, he offers a lot to the community by way of making... Uh, to video tutorials. He's been doing it for a very long time. He's very good at it. He's an OG, and uh, the way that you find him is at BTC Sessions, all one word, BTC S-E-S-S-I-O-N-S. Now, here's the doppelgangers. He's got one that is BTC S-E-S-S-S, three S's, I-O-N-S, and then he's got another one that is B-T-C-S-E-S-S-I-O-N with no ending S. You see how this works? You got to be on your toes. I mean, on your toes. So go report BTC Sessions with three S's in the middle of the name and BTC Session with no ending S Uh, and tell them or tell the, you know, in the report, make sure that you say that they're trying to uh, impersonate BTC Sessions. That's BTC S-E-S-S-I-O-N-S. Two S's in the middle, one S on the end. Get rid of these doppelgangers. They're just horrible, horrible people. Now, let's get into the news. Uh, So we had this rise in price. And, you know, it was, we were, yay. And then, you know, Michael Saylor was like 500 million, you know, million dollars. Yay. And then a billion dollars in sales to, that he could possibly be, you know, he's going to sell stock class A shares of MicroStrategy and buy some Bitcoin with it. But he's also going to buy maybe some other things with it. We don't know, but definitely, you know, he's probably going to buy Bitcoin with it and yay. And the price goes up and, and then all of a sudden we end up into this sideways motion. So why? Well, this may answer the question. 
Bitcoin enters a wait and see phase ahead of the Federal Reserve statement. Oh, okay. That's, they're going to say something. They're going to open their mouths and, and say something today. Let's find out more from Amkar Godbol, who's writing this from Coindesk. Uh, Bitcoin is holding in a tight range as the focus turns to Wednesday's Federal Reserve monetary policy statement, which could offer clues on the central bank's course of action and inject volatility into financial markets. The cryptocurrency has been trading in a narrow range of 39400 to 41300 since Monday's European trading hours, Coindesk 20 data show. Quote, the market is completely neutral ahead of the Fed with only a little spot buying. Brian Tahako, CIO at Warwick Capital Management, said traders are waiting for the Fed announcement. The event is likely to have a binary market reaction, according to Singapore-based QCP Capital. Binary events are dramatic developments that trigger big moves in either direction. Quote, if the Fed remains dovish, i.e. retains its pro-stimulus bias, Cryptocurrencies would have the most upside potential until September at least, given the overselling we've seen relative to other macro markets since May's CPI print, QCP Capital noted in its Telegram channel. Bitcoin tanked from 58 grand to nearly 30,000 in the eight days uh, to March 19th. The sell-off began after official data released on May the 12th showed the U.S. Consumer Price Index surged to the highest level in almost three years. Well, that renewed fears of an early Fed taper or the gradual unwinding of the liquidity-boosting stimulus. However, while Bitcoin dropped in the wake of Fed-tightening fears, traditional markets remained resilient, with gold ending May with a 7.8% gain. Equities also remained a bid. That's left Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies in general looking relatively cheap heading into the Fed announcement and could benefit them most on the back of a dovish outcome. On the flip side, a hawkish surprise could weigh on asset prices. Quote, if they're hawkish on Wednesday, then all bets are off and we could expect the crypto market to revisit recent lows, QCP Capital said. According to Patrick Hauser, the head of trading at Zurich-based crypto broker AG, the pain trade could be a risk-off reaction resulting in an uptick in safe haven currencies like the franc, yen, and the U.S. dollar, and a sell-off in commodities and equities. The risk-off could also bring losses for Bitcoin, Hosers, or Hauser said. The crypto market appears to have positioned for a surge in volatility post-Fed. Quote, the crypto market looks to be long gamma, Heading into this event, Denis Vinokurov, head of research at Synergia Capital, told Coindesk, Gamma refers to the speed of change in the options delta, <laughs> the sensitivity of the options price to changes in the price of the underlying asset. That is, Gamma measures the rate of change in the options price relative to changes in the spot market prices. That sounds like just a general calculus derivative to me. Just saying. Being long gamma means holding an options position with net gamma greater than zero. In plain English, the position will benefit from a pickup in price volatility of the underlying asset. So if you're wondering what's going on with the sideways action, it's the Fed announcement and that comes out sometime today. In fact, it'll probably be out by the time you hear this show. I don't know what they're going to say yet because it's still too early in the morning and I don't think that they've said anything at all. However, hold on. Okay, I just found this from Reuters and it was released, God, you know, like four minutes ago. So lucky us. Um, Fed expected to signal start of monetary policy shift debate. Okay, they haven't said anything yet. They're just expected to. So let's see what the, this is, what's going on here. The Federal Reserve officials on Wednesday are expected to at least flag the pending start of talks about when and how to exit from the crisis-era policies the United States Central Bank put in place at the onset of the coronavirus pandemic last year. With the United States inflation rising faster than expected and the economy forecast to grow at its quickest pace in decades this year, some policymakers have begun questioning whether the Fed should continue to keep its benchmark short-term interest rate near zero and leave unchanged a massive bond-buying program put in place to stem the economic fallout of the pandemic. 
Balanced against improving the economic terrain, the United States is still 7.5 million jobs short of where it was in early 2020, and the reopening of schools, concert venues, and a host of other public uh, areas remains a work in pro progress. Daily coronavirus infections and deaths have plummeted. Any actual change in monetary policy is, as a result, likely months down the road as the, as the Fed balances a variety of risks. Okay, so this is basically just saying that they are going to at least flag, how the hell do we unwind this shit? Guess what? You ain't unwinding this shit. You know one of the reasons why? I got a letter from the IRS yesterday saying that me and, that me and my wife were eligible for like 3,000 bucks per kid per month until frickin' January, starting in July. Okay, so if it, it doesn't matter if they're going, I don't, it, it, for, in my opinion, it's just my opinion. In my opinion, I don't see how they unwind this shit w without, with it not getting worse first because they're about to inject a whole shit ton of money into the economy. However, this time they are actually putting it in the hands of United States citizens. So that's different than just handing it out to their friends. But be that as it may, yet more money has been printed and is going to find its way into the markets. What do you think that's going to do? I don't think it's going to be very helpful. I mean, it's helpful in the short term to just regular people. But in the long term, I'm not sure if it's all that helpful. Now, yesterday I said something about the, uh, was it J.P. Morgan uh, or Jamie Dimon saying that he was hoarding cash? It wasn't yesterday. It may have been, it may have been Monday. But J.P. Uh, Morgan Chief or whatever, J Jamie Dimon, whoever that dude is, um, <laughs> the, the banker guy said that they were hoarding cash because of inflation, which everybody went, woo, holy shit, you don't get this. Well, maybe we were all wrong because maybe what he was saying is that he was hoarding cash because he knew that the Fed was going to flag unwinding and then he was going to start buying the instruments with the hoarded cash uh, that is going to benefit from whatever it is the Fed says, because there's always a loser and a winner every time the Fed opens their mouth, right? So maybe Jamie Dimon wasn't saying, we're hoarding cash because we want to go buy inflated goods and services. We're just going to hoard cash because we're going to buy, I don't know, whatever instrumentation is going to benefit from the Fed opening their mouth with a hawkish tone. So, you know, Jamie's not stupid. It's it just the way that that particular story was worded, just it honestly, it didn't seem to give to both sides of the story because it's not like he's hoarding cash to go buy groceries. If, he, if that's what he was doing, well, then he's stupid. But uh, Jamie didn't get to be where he is because he's stupid. We got to, you know, we got to admit that to ourselves anyway. Uh, there you go. So we'll have to wait to see what the Fed actually says. Again, you'll probably know what the Fed said before I finish recording and uploading this show. So we'll just continue. These United States states want your Bitcoin mining business because they're bailing out of China. Yeah, this is Bitcoin Magazine's Jesse Willems. While China seems serious about shutting down its Bitcoin mining sector, Iran's government is closing down some mines and India is not sure what its policy is. The U.S. is clearly open for Bitcoin mining business. U.S. states are actively seeking out mining businesses looking for markets for stranded or unused energy overbuilt from a past with a more active manufacturing economy. In addition, there is interest in job creation benefits, particularly in the initial setup phase of a mining operation. For instance, senators from New York State <clears throat> were recently forced to withdraw a version of a proposed law which would have put a moratorium on new and expanding mining operations as the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers reportedly lobbied on behalf of their members against the potential ban. Meanwhile, in Texas, they're vying to become a new global epicenter for Bitcoin and its associated industries. And three other states, Wyoming, Nebraska, and Illinois, have all introduced digital charters to allow financial institutions to transact in Bitcoin, indicating that they are also open. So in Texas, we have Bitcoin mining companies, Bitmain, Block, what, Blockcap, Argo, Blockchain, BIT, Layer 1, and Compute North all have chosen to set up shop in Texas, 
where energy is cheap and the government is friendly. Quote, I just signed a law that puts virtual currency under the Texas Uniform Commercial Code to be a secure transaction, as Texas Governor Greg Abbott, who has signaled his support for new cryptocurrency laws, tweeted on June the 14th. Quote, it defies virtual currency, or sorry, it defines virtual currency, establishes when a person acquires a right in it and when a person has control of it, end quote. And former Governor Rick Perry has made favorable statements about the Bitcoin mining industry as well. Compared to many U.S. states, Texas energy rates are inexpensive and there is abundant access to renewable sources, drawing many Bitcoin miners there. Quote, we chose West Texas because it offers us some of the lowest electricity rates in the world and the majority is from renewable sources, namely wind and solar, Argo blockchain CEO Peter Wall recently told Bitcoin Magazine. Other miners may find an advantage in oil and gas vent capture technology that's being pioneered by upstream data. Mining companies that use gas vented capture technology are in a good position in Texas with its many oil and gas producers. In a recent podcast, Bitcoin investor and champion Max Kaiser talked about both Austin, Texas, and Miami, Florida as growing hubs of Bitcoin-friendly businesses and legislators. According to Kaiser, Austin is more likely to be a hub of mining specifically. Now, Wyoming. U.S. Senator Cynthia Lummis of Wyoming, along with Wall Street veteran and lobbyist Caitlin Long, are leading the charge to make Wyoming a national Bitcoin mining center. In 2018, lawmakers there brought in two cryptocurrency-friendly bills to signal their interest in embracing Bitcoin companies ahead of any other state. To date, the state has passed 13 blockchain-related laws. If cheap energy is the key to successful mining, then Wyoming is in a great position. It produces 14 times more energy than it consumes, making it the biggest net supplier of energy in the country. Shit, I, I didn't know that, man. That's, that's pretty astounding. And the state is moving towards more green energy sources, a trend that the Bitcoin mining industry at large is following as well. Recently, Wyoming signed an agreement with Bill Gates's TerraPower to build a small modular nuclear reactor in a retiring coal plant. Quote, the reactor would be built within one of four retiring coal plants, signaling a greener energy future for a Wyoming economy that has long relied on fossil fuels, according to one report. The state also installed the third largest amount of wind power generating capacity in 2020 after Texas and Iowa, according to a government report. On to Illinois. I know, Illinois, it's, it's blowing my mind, but apparently they're in. Following Wyoming and Nebraska, Illinois has a new digital charter rule which has passed earlier this year to allow any financial service companies using cryptocurrency to apply for a banking charter. Quote, on March the 23rd, 2021, the Illinois House Committee on Financial Institutions unanimously passed a bill to create a banking charter for a special purpose trust company, according to a recent report. Quote, Illinois will be the third state to explore emerging financial technologies, end quote. And further enticing Bitcoin mining operations, the state has a growing focus on renewable energy. As of March 2019, the state's net electricity generation by source was 7% natural gas, 30% coal-fired, 54% nuclear, which is the most in the nation, and 10% into renewables, according to the Illinois Environmental Council. With 11 commercial nuclear power reactors at six sites, generating half of the state's electricity, Illinois can guarantee emission-free green power for the foreseeable future. Other states are also coming up fast and hoping to take advantage of a growing demand for energy, particularly renewable energy by Bitcoin miners, including Nebraska, Kentucky, and Tennessee. It seems only a matter of time before much more of the network's overall hash rate migrates to the U.S. That's right. As China decides to have fun staying poor, they're just giving it to the rest of the world. They're just giving the wealth to the rest of the world. I, 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 whatever China's long-term game plan is, I don't know. But honestly, I think expansionism and colonialism is what they're more concerned about. I, they're flying... They flew 36 fighter aircraft in the Thai, like around Taiwan or the Taiwanese area uh, in an obvious display of force. Guys, 
Taiwan's going to fall next. They took Hong Kong. They're going to take Taiwan. If you are in Taiwan, I would start having an exit plan that you can execute on a 24-hour notice to get the fuck out. You do not want to be under communist Chinese control. You just don't want to do that, right? So figure out how to, how to get out. I'm just saying, man, you got to get out of that place because that, that's why I, I really do. I think China is more concerned about expansionism at this point than anything else. And I think that they're, I think that they're, they are, let's see, ignoring all other potentialities for the future of their people simply because they're blinded by the fact that nobody's going to stop them taking Taiwan. If you think that the United States Navy is going to blockade Taiwan and defend that and defend them against China, I, I got bridges to sell you because I do not think that the United States is going to defend Taiwan. We should, and other countries should should follow suit, but we didn't do dick for Hong Kong. Of course, then again, there was a lease on Hong Kong, so it was a little bit different. So anyway, I'm just saying, man, it's going to be a it's going to be a weird century. Okay, continuing on, global investment funds hold more than $43 billion in Bitcoin. This is Bitcoin Magazine's Anomsios. Global investment clients now hold more than $43 billion worth of Bitcoin on behalf of their clients. According to a report from Financial News, corporate Bitcoin holdings, meanwhile, have reached a total of $6.5 billion dollars. Anatoly Krachilov, CEO of Nickel Digital, the firm that supplied the data behind the report, told Financial Times that the inclusion of Bitcoin in the portfolios of leading global asset managers was a very important endorsement for Bitcoin's emerging functionality of the hedge against inflation, end quote. For instance, global asset manager Paul Tudor Jones has recently been vocal about Bitcoin in his investment portfolio. Yesterday, Jones highlighted Bitcoin's strengths as an asset, sharing that he looks at it as a portfolio diversifier to protect his wealth over time. Similarly, as more institutional investors open up to Bitcoin exposure, banks and asset managers seek to capitalize on the movement. Goldman Sachs, for example, has been quite active in the Bitcoin space. The investment bank launched a derivatives product based on the price of Bitcoin in April and announced it would soon offer Bitcoin investment vehicles to its private wealth clients in March. Increased institutional adoption can bring benefits to Bitcoin and its investment ecosystem, Kratchlov told Financial Times, quote, increased allocation by large-scale institutional investors and corporate players is expected to lead to a reduction of Bitcoin's volatility over time, he said, due to a long-term stickier type of capital brought by those investors, end quote. Kachilov later added that increased Bitcoin exposure by institutional investors would also result in a much larger liquidity pool of the ecosystem. Data from Nickel Digital also showed that among the present-day investment funds that hold Bitcoin, three-fifths of the total are based in North America. Furthermore, Many companies have added Bitcoin to their balance sheets with corporate Bitcoin holdings reaching over $6.5 billion, a number that 81% of European institutional investors and wealth managers surveyed by Nickel expects to see grow. Now, without getting off of that point, we've got some detail work of what this Nickel report actually has to say. I got Samuel Haig coming in with the detail work from Cointelegraph. Uh, listed companies, trusts, and ETPs now control almost 7% of Bitcoin supply is the headline. The figures contained in a new study by Nickel Digital Asset Management uh, say that 19 firms cited are worth a combined market cap of more than $1 trillion, with 13 based in North America, three domiciled in Europe, and the remainder in Turkey, Hong Kong, and Australia. 17 other listed companies have purchased BTC. However, details regarding their allocations are not available. The study shows that institutional adoption of crypto is on the rise and eight listed companies purchasing Bitcoin during the first four months of 2021 compared to seven during all of 2020. Wow. Bitcoin, or I'm sorry, beyond the treasuries of listed firms, the study identified that $43.2 billion worth of BTC, equivalent to nearly 6% of Bitcoin's market cap, is held by ETPs, exchange-traded products, and trusts. 
in Hedge Week, Nickel CEO and co-founder Ant 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 Oh God, my God, Antitoli Chichachicharov. I can't pronounce his name, argued that a combination of the COVID-19 crisis and expansionary monetary policies from central banks has heightened the risk of currency debasement, adding, quote, this, coupled with the increasingly inflationary guidance by the Fed and an ever-expanding pile of U.S. $18 trillion of negative yield, yielding global bonds has encouraged many corporations to contemplate an allocation to alternative assets. Research from Nickel carried out earlier in the year prior to the recent downturn suggests institutional crypto allocations will continue to grow with 81% of European wealth managers and institutional investors indicating that they expect to see an increase in Bitcoin held among corporate reserves. Kratchalov asserted the growing trend of institutions allocating Bitcoin to their treasuries will tame crypto's price volatility, as we heard, blah, blah, blah. However, here, here's the, the caveat. However, not everyone agrees that institutions are chomping at the bit to gain exposure to crypto with J.P. Morgan analyst <clears throat> Nikolos Pandigurzatizagola, whatever, asserting the recent premium observed in the spot markets over futures prices indicates institutional demand is waning. According to Bitcoin Treasuries, a further $13.5 billion worth of BTC is held in the treasuries of four private companies, Block.1, the Tezos Foundation, Mt. Gox, it's like a zombie, it never goes away, and Stone Ridge Holdings Corp, or Group. The website also estimates the government of Bulgaria is sitting on roughly $8.5 billion worth of Bitcoin, while Ukraine's government uh, holds $1.8 billion in BTC. So there's a little bit more of a breakdown of the last uh, uh, story that we just read. All right, let's see here. Plebs versus patricians in ancient Rome. What can Bitcoiners learn? Well, we're going to learn a little history is what we're going to learn. This is coming from Wilbur Wrong. Actually, that's pronounced that wrong. It's Wilbur Wrong. It literally has four R's in the name. Bitcoin magazine, uh, society in ancient Rome was split into two classes, the patricians and the pleb plebeians, or plebs. Patricians were the aristocrats. Legend has it that the original 100 patricians were chosen by Rome's founder, Romulus, <clears throat> at the founding of the city in 753 BC. These 100 men were chosen for their wisdom and merit, and the Senate acted as an advisory to the king. Interestingly, they also elected new Roman kings, so the king's title was not hereditary. However, the descendants of the patricians laid claim to their title, and thus there was a noble class. The plebeians were everybody else. Free Roman citizens, they were nevertheless only one step above slavery. Plebs were farmers, laborers, and bakers. Often a pleb would have a patronage relationship with a patrician, which constituted employment as well as a pledge to fight as a soldier in case any war broke out. Plebs worked long hours and lived in crowded apartment buildings with unsanitary conditions. Plebs were forbidden from holding political office and from intermarriage with patricians. As could be expected, over the course of generations, the patrician class became <laughs> entitled and, guess what, corrupt. Upon the overthrow of the last Roman king in 509 BTC, patricians had complete control of the Senate as well as two consuls, analogous to the executive branches of the United States government, so the patricians had total political control as well as most of the wealth. After 509 BC, BC the uh, patricians passed onerous taxes and changed the structure of farming in order to increase their profits. Under the monarchy, many plebeian farmers worked the public lands owned by the king and scratched out a meager living. When the patricians took control, they brought in slave labor, which was obviously cheaper. Plebeians could get a small allotment of their own land, but were then forced to overwork it to make end meet, <clears throat> ends meet, and this could lead to debt and perhaps slavery in the case of a default. Another major problem, was, uh, which is hard to comprehend from a modern perspective, the patricians in the Senate would pass laws, but those laws were not codified or written down. The plebeian case before a magistrate could be decided in any unfair or arbitrary manner with no recourse. 
As an example of a specific case that caused angry mobs at the Roman Forum, we have this, quote, Historian Titus Livy <clears throat> describes the story of how an elderly man with scars on his skin, this proved his dedication on the battlefield, pale and sick with leather, a long beard clad in worn clothes, he fell to the ground in the Roman or the Forum Romanum, the city center. Then he told other citizens his story. As it turned out, he was an officer in the Roman army in the war against the Sabines. During the conflict, his farm was burned and cattle were killed by an enemy army. Moreover, a tax was imposed on him that he was unable to pay. He had to take a loan, which he had nothing to cover. As a result, he lost his grandfather's and his father's farm. Lack of further funds to pay the debt meant that he was imprisoned, threatened with death, and then scourged. <laughs> That's the end of the story. Taking a momentary aside, these practices sound remarkably similar to our modern world. Elites squeezing their workers by finding cheaper sources of labor, thus driving the working class into debt, maybe. Check. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Laws that are either not written down or comparably laws that are impenetrable and filled with complex subclauses. Check. De double check, bitches. The timeless and fundamental lesson to be drawn here would seem to be that the aristotic or aristocratic class will always seek to maximize its advantage until the point when the lower classes cannot bear any more. And this is what happened next with the conflict of the orders. Let's come back to that after we run the numbers. CNBC commodities. We've got oil, uh, West Texas Intermediate, up again by almost a fifth of a point to $72.25 a barrel. Brent North Sea up almost a half a point to $74.33 a barrel. Natural gas mostly sideways, but still coming in at three and a quarter for a thousand cubic feet of it. Uh, shiny metal rocks doing well. Gold is up 0 0.09. <laughs> It's still below 1900 coming in at $1,858. Silver eh, is pretty good, 0.6% to the upside, $27.86. Platinum is the only shiny metal rock that's down. Copper is up a one and a quarter, as is palladium up one and a quarter. All of the agricultural futures are up except for cocoa. And who's the winner today? Corn. <laughs> The corn wins today, two and a third percent to the upside. Is there any other? Yeah, rough rice is up 1.71. Now, let's see here. Dow is down, going to come in down 0.17. Yeah, it's all sideways. Can you guess why? Because the few, they're all going to be really dependent on what's going on with whatever the Fed says. So even the indices, all of them are moving sideways, except for the S&P mini, which is down a full uh, half a point, and the NASDAQ, which is actually up a full half point. Wow, that's kind of interesting. I'm surprised there's that much movement there. All right, real money. You got Bitcoin at $39,247 with 237,000 transactions performed in the last 24 hours, and that's about 10,000 transactions every hour on the hour per average. 610,300 BTC were sent in the 24-hour period. That's about 25,500 BTC being sent every hour on the hour. With the average transaction value of 2.5 BTC and the median transaction value of 0.024 BTC, or right at 940 bucks, we've lost hash rate. How can I tell? Block times are 12 minutes and 38 seconds. Uh, let's see. We have, ooh, we're, oh, yeah, our, oh, good. I'm, man, sorry, guys. I'm all over the place. 0.34 BTC being taken in fees on a per block basis, 38.78 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. Here we go. With a 0.22% rise in hash rate over the last 24 hours, we are at 131 and a half exahashes per second. Your shitcoin indicator is down to 26.6 United States pennies. That would be Dogecoin. Now, Clark Moody is showing 8,790 uh, uh, transactions waiting to, for five blocks to clear. We have a market capitalization of $733.8 billion. That's 
of gold's current market cap. And we can buy 21.2 ounces of shiny metal rocks with our one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,736,241.5 of in circulation, with 1,531 of those being uh, blocked in the Lightning Network with a capacity value back to $60 million. That's being run over 12,054 nodes that we can see. There are actually very much more nodes than that. We just can't see them. There are 50,228 channels that we can see. There are private channels, probably many more than 50,000. And the Tor capacity, <clears throat> uh, or the percentage of Tor capacity is at 62.5%. So 62.5% of the Lightning Network is run over Tor. That has 957.13 BTC as a capacity in it. And it is being run over 6,239 Tor nodes that we actually know about. Uh, the price that Clark Moody is showing for Bitcoin is six, what, uh, 6,000, 39,180. That's gonna do it for vitals. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. We continue with our Roman history lesson, the conflict of the orders. In 494 BC, the plebeian class did something fairly badass. <clears throat> they walked out and they left the city of Rome, congregating on the Mons Sacer or sacred mountains. The plebs were the vast majority of the population, so the city's economy ground to a halt. The patricians' comfortable lives were upset with no one to cook their meals, wash their clothes, or care for their properties. And perhaps most importantly, the city of Rome could not raise soldiers for defense from neighboring kingdoms. At Mons Sacer, however you pronounce it, the plebs built a defensive fort while emissaries negotiated between the classes. Advantage with a position of strength, the plebs won several concessions. Many debts were canceled and the plebs gained a political voice with the tribune of the plebs. The tribune could convene the people's assembly to pass laws that applied to the plebeian class, and the tribune could veto decisions of the consuls or magistrates which provided legal protection against the whims of patrician officials. The plebeian secession has been likened to a labor strike. From a Bitcoiner point of view, I find it most interesting that the plebs made use of the power of exit, removing themselves from a corrupt situation in order to exercise the power of voice, exerting persuasion to make changes to the system. Once the plebs returned to Rome, then there was harmony and common purpose between the classes, right? Oh, hell no. The patricians defended their political power at every step and attempted to regain the rights that were won by the plebs. Following the first secession in 494 BC, the plebs continued to advocate for laws to be codified. This led to the establishment of the Decemvir or Council of Ten or December. I think it's called I think it's pronounced Decemvir. D-E-C-V D-E-C-E-M-V-I-R. Anyway, Council of Ten in five or four fifty-one BC. The council made ten tablets of laws. However, all the officers of the Decemvir were patrician, and they took the opportunity to reassert political power. In particular, the Ten Tablets restricted the powers of the Tribune of the Plebs. And we'll add insult to injury here, quote, <clears throat> There was also outrageous behavior by officials. One of the Tribune of Plebs was killed for criticizing the Decemvir. What's more, a certain Appius Claudius Crassius, or Crassus, a plebeian representative coming from the patriciate, wanted to force a woman named Virginia to marry him. He used the trick here, forcing the girl's father, father Virginius, to enslave his daughter and selling her to the Decemvir. To prevent this, the centurion killed, or the centurion father killed his own daughter to preserve her honor and cursed the Decemvir. End quote. <clears throat> there were riots in the streets following the death of Virginia, and a second secession in 449 BC to Monsacare. The plebs gained further concessions, including the restoration of the Tribune of the Plebs and the codification of the law into 12 tablets with pleb representation. The secession also took steps toward the principle of equality of all before the law. 
The plebeian council could pass laws that applied to all citizens regardless of class, uh, though the patrician senate retained veto power over these laws. As an interlude, I must admit that the story of Virginia moves me in an emotional way. Plebs on Bitcoin Twitter make bold statements about freedom on a regular basis, but people of past ages have made unimaginable sacrifices to obtain freedom from tyranny. The conflict of the orders would continue for more than 150 years following the second secession of 449 BC. It seems that people with political and economic privileges do not give them up so easily. There were further secessions in 445, 342, and 287 BC, and by the end of it, the plebs had won equality before the law. The pleb council could pass laws that applied to all Roman citizens, and the patrician senate had no power of veto. For those of us living in the modern West, this serves as a stark reminder. We assume equality before the law as an obvious and unchanging principle. However, the plebs of ancient Rome fought for over 200 years, inch by inch, to force it into reality. There are several final thoughts to take from this historical drama. It's interesting to note that by the time of the final secession in 287 BC, several plebeian families had become wealthy and entitled without much care for the fellow members of their class. This will surely happen to Bitcoin plebs as well. I'm reminded of this mindset every time I see Bitcoiners cheering on and advocating for institutional adoption. Will we or our descendants become the new corrupt elites in the future? I have referred to other lessons throughout the text. The ideals of freedom from tyranny and equality before the law are great as a rant on Twitter, but ancient Rome plebs made serious sacrifices and sometimes bloody for these very ideals. Are we ready that we might come next? I don't know. And lastly, it's quite interesting that the plebs used their power of exit in order to effect change in the existing system. It was a geologically slow, torturous process to force the patrician class to finally cede power. <clears throat> what do we wish as Bitcoiners? In my opinion, government currency will always exist in some form. Do we wish to force change in government actions? Or will we instead create our own parallel system which can interact with government when needed? Time will tell and no one knows what may come. I wish you well, Bitcoin plebs. Let all continue to run our own nodes, increase our knowledge, and I hope to interact and do mutually advantageous business with you in the future. All right, man. If you want to learn more, uh, there's like a podcast. I think it's called Ancient Rome. It's not active anymore, but it was a, this guy basically went through the entire history of Ancient Rome podcast by podcast and there's like i don't know 45 of them and you want to talk about some interesting shit he went that podcast went through the plebeian secessions and think about it i mean they went through like seven secessions which meant that seven times the entire plebeian class got up and walked the fuck out seven times over 200 years he also goes into the fact that what was said about virginia here didn't really hit the whole thing. Virginia was actually raped. And then the December did all, all his shit. And that's, it, it was, it's a different, it was a different take than what was presented here. Maybe he didn't want to get into the rape issue. I don't know, but Virginia was actually raped. And then his, her father killed her. And I don't know, it was just, it, the whole thing was a mess. But the, the point being that seven different times over 200 years is what it took. And we're still right back here. We still have the World Economic Council. We still have, or the WEF. We still have the, uh, all the central banks. We still have the International Monetary Fund. We still have, you know, governments that are just so huge and as corrupt as they are huge, that it seems like there's just no way out, which leads me to my working thesis question, is it impossible? Is the, <clears throat> is the human species, because the way that our physical three-dimensional brains are structured, is it impossible for us to not have this size governance? Or is it a fact that we have to have at least the tiniest bit of governance, but that always ends up exploding into a leviathan. I don't know. If you have your thoughts, I'd like to hear them. Twitter handle is at B-E-N-N-D-7-7. That is B, 
E N N D seven seven on Twitter. Let me know what you think. I'd like to hear about it. Let's hear about what Marie Hulliot has to say from this Coin Telegraph article. Regulations drive Korean exchanges to delist and warn against high risk coins. South Korea's cryptocurrency market continues to transform firm transform under the weight of mounting regulatory pressures. Major crypto exchanges such as Upbit have this week moved to delist or warn against specific digital assets they have judged to be high risk for investors. The trend, as local reporters note, seemingly has been sparked by the increasing level of intervention by financial regulators into crypto service providers' operations. Last week, Korea's Financial Intelligence Unit uh, reportedly contacted 33 crypto trading platforms to warn that it would be conducting a field consultation before September the 24th. These, quote, consultations aim to check whether or not the businesses are compliant with the requirements set by the Specific Financial Transactions Act, which came into force in March of this year. Upbit has delisted Maro, Paycoin, Observer, Solve.care, and Quitsock last week and issued warning on its English site for six more assets on June the 11th triggering a one-week review process by the end of which a final decision as to whether or not to delist these six shitcoins will be taken. As the Korean Herald notes, the initial delisting sparked a plummet in the coin's prices, with typical losses being between 50 and 70% in value. Beyond the investment warnings published in English, Upbit's new investment warnings reportedly extend to 25 different assets, or roughly 14% of the coins listed on the platform. In addition to Upbit, a reported total of 11 out of 20 exchanges that received a security management system certificate have taken similar moves, and Korea's Financial Supervisory Service have also has also this week contacted multiple exchanges requesting that they provide the agency with the details of delisted or suspended assets. In addition to agencies' direct communications with exchanges, Korea's Financial Services Commission, which is tasked with oversight of the cryptocurrency market, has formed reportedly five new working groups that will each be charged with specific tasks tied to implementing Korea's new crypto regulatory regime, ranging from advising exchanges seeking registration or working with the National Assembly to enact measures aimed at improving the country's cryptocurrency ecosystem. The group's assigned roles are indicated in their nomenclature, and those are Daily Situation Group, Reporting and Response Group, On the Spot Consulting Group, Capital Market Group, and System Improvement Group. Under the auspices of the FIU, the groups will work together with Financial Supervisory Services Anti-Money Laundering Office, Korea Exchange Securities Market Headquarters, Korea Securities Depository, and Korea Federation of Banks and COSCOM. Earlier this week, Cointelegraph reported that a new policy from the FSC will require that the banks classify any crypto exchanges as high risk. Or no, I'm sorry, banks, they need to classify any crypto exchange clients as high risk. So they're going after the people. The agency has also clarified its roadmap for ensuring that crypto exchanges seeking authorization implement strong transaction monitoring and uphold strong user ID requirements Following the September 24th final deadline, financial intelligence officials will be charged with scrutinizing applicant crypto exchange trading activities for a review period of three months. So shitcoins getting delisted all over South Korea, all over their exchanges. I'm not upset. I'm just going to come out and say it. I'm not upset. Do I think that the government should be able to do this? No, because it's, you know, I just would rather people be free. But all these shitcoins are just scams. So it's like, damned if you do, damned if you don't. You know, I want freedom and freedom for everybody else. Yet when I see people just get, you know, just unmercilessly scammed, you know, or, or well, actually mercilessly, just mercy, without mercy. Nobody gives a shit about these people and they just sell them these bags and bags and bags of crap. And you just stand by and say, well, that's freedom. I don't know, man. So maybe instead of the exchange being forced to delist coins by, you know, a government official, you know, maybe it should be a council of the plebs, which means that only Bitcoin remains.
Just kidding, guys. Don't get all over my ass. Although you're probably going to get all over my ass for this one. Helen Parts is writing it for Cointelegraph. El Salvador minister says it's too early to use Bitcoin for wages. El Salvador's minister of labor and social welfare has said that the country is not yet ready to support uh, adoption of Bitcoin for salary payments. Okay, we're talking about salaries here, not everything else. In a Wednesday tweet, Rolando Castro denied local reports which claimed that his ministry had begun analyzing the possibility of Bitcoin-based salaries with officials from the Ministry of Finance and the Ministry of Economy on Monday. Castro stressed that he was just answering a question stating that it was too premature to talk about wages. The official added that he is now focused on finding more and better jobs for El Salvadorans. Monetary issues fall under the economic cabinet and I'm not part of it, he noted. The minister's remarks came after or a week after El Salvador passed, or President Naib Bukele uh, bill making Bitcoin legal tender in the country. Crypto influencers have since flocked to the small Central American nation to meet with Bukele. And we have a picture of Ray Paxful standing here. Uh, it's that's yeah. Ray Paxful from, uh, from well Paxful standing with like four armed guards chilling out in El Salvador. He says, rolled into El Salvador to a king's welcome. Thanks to El Presidente, the Bitcoin delegation has arrived and history is being made thanks to the hard work of the people of Bitcoin Beach. All right, well, we'll have to see how that goes. As previously reported, El Salvador's 2001 Law of Monetary Integration, which provided a legal basis for replacing the Salvadorian Cologne with the United States dollar, stipulates that salaries and fees may only be paid in colones or dollars. <clears throat> it's still unclear whether the approval of Bitcoin as legal tender in El Salvador would expand upon existing law or replace it. President Naib Bukele's draft of the law states that tax contributions can be paid in Bitcoin and for accounting purposes, the USD will be used as a reference currency, end quote. <clears throat> okay, about that. Um, May uh, like that that this this 2001 law of monetary integration stipulates that salaries and fees may only be paid in colones or dollars. In the law, the or in the quote Bitcoin law, it was clearly stated that any past law or stipulation that came into conflict with the Bitcoin law was basically made null and void and would be done so 90 days after the entry of the Bitcoin law into the El Salvadoran. Gazette. I presume that to mean that the stipulation of salaries and fees being only paid in colonists or dollars will be made null and void by the Bitcoin law and the stipulation in the Bitcoin law superseding all other stipulations that would interfere with Bitcoin being accepted as currency. That's my, that's just the way that I'm looking at it. I may be completely wrong, right? Not a legal scholar, but still, I can read, you know, it's, I, I have been doing it for a while. So that's what I think. You want to know what Steve Hank thinks? Well, Mr. Hankey thinks this. Uh, Cointelegraph, Brian, Brian Quarmby says, Steve Hank warns BTC could completely collapse the economy of El Salvador. <laughs> As if it's not already collapsed. It can, you can't do much more. Uh, you can't do much more to it, dude. Anyway, Steve Hankey a professor of applied economics at Johns Hopkins University has warned that El Salvador's recent adoption of Bitcoin as legal tender has the potential to completely collapse the economy. I'm sorry, but of, of which there is none. Steve Hankey served as a senior economist under President Ronald Reagan's administration from 1981 to 82. Hankey has previously described BTC as a speculative asset with a fundamental value of zero. And in April, the 78-year-old dinosaur tweeted, cryptocurrencies are the future of money, and Bitcoin is not. <laughs> Speaking with streaming financial news provider, Kitco News on Tuesday, the university professor noted that BTC hodlers from regions such as Russia and China can now target El Salvador to cash out their holdings, essentially draining the country of its United States dollar. Oh, good God, Steve. Quote, it has the potential to completely collapse the economy because all the dollars in El Salvador could be vacuumed up and there'd be no money in the country. They don't have a domestic currency. Steve, they're just going to start trading Bitcoin with each other, dude. 
During the interview, The Economist described the, the elected representatives in El Salvador who voted in favor of President Bukele's Bitcoin law as, in a word, stupid. He called the leaders of El Salvador stupid. Okay, that's, you're not somebody who I would ever have go to the State Department, Steve. Jesus, your diplomacy is about as, as bad as the worst bedside manner I've ever seen from a, I don't know, an oncologist or a brain surgeon. Anyway, <clears throat> and he also questioned how Bitcoin could function as legal tender in day-to-day -day transactions in the country where most citizens rely on cash. Quote, you're not going to pay for your taxi ride with a Bitcoin. It's ridiculous. You've got 70% of the people in El Salvador and they don't even have bank accounts, he said. You see how he's blinded by his own rage that he's not even looking at the, like, first of all, he's not looking at logic, but he's not even trying to identify possible workarounds and try to steel man or straw man his own arguments here. He's just in a blind rage. And that's when you get into trouble. When you're so angry that you cannot actually think logically or you can't figure out how to self-argumentation your way to a, a, a better understanding of what it is that you clearly don't understand, you've lost the game. Continuing, on Friday, J.P. Morgan echoed similar sentiments, but in a more measured language, with a firm stating in a client note that it was difficult to see any tangible economic benefits associated with adopting Bitcoin as a second form of legal tender, and it may imperil negotiations with the IMF. Who gives a shit? The Central American Bank for Economic Integration doesn't share this view, however, and stated yesterday that El Salvador's adoption of BTC is innovative or innovative and creates <clears throat> many spaces and opportunities. The multinational bank also revealed that it will be forming a technical advisory group to aid El Salvador in its transition to using Bitcoin as legal tender. Hanky speculated that dark forces are clearly behind this in El Salvador who want to use Bitcoin to get their hands on U.S. dollars. Oh, for God's sakes. The Economist also described remittances across borders in Bitcoin as nonsensical, as he thinks the asset will need to be converted instantly to dollars to be able to use it. Quote, if grandma's down in El Salvador and waiting for her remittances and you want to send Bitcoin like that, it's fine, but what does she do? She has to go to the ATM to get dollars because that's the only way you can buy something, Hanky said. However, businesses in El Salvador will be mandated to accept Bitcoin. In an article in Foreign Policy by trenchant Bitcoin critic David Girard, author of the, author of the book Attack of the 50-Foot Blockchain, speculated that as El Salvador can't print U.S. dollars, its adoption of BTC may be part of a move to source U.S. dollar liquidity from its citizens to pay back foreign debts. They're coming up with anything and everything that they can to discredit this move and expect it to get worse and expect it not to end anytime soon. But we've got to move on. Digital Euro could deplete bank deposits by 8%, Morgan Stanley says. If you don't understand that what I'm about to read you is exactly the same shit that Steve Hankey is saying, except this one's correct and Steve Hankey is wrong, then I don't know what to do with you, but let's get into it. A digital euro could deplete bank deposits by 8%, according to a report cited by Reuters. The U.S. investment bank based its estimate on a scenario where all citizens in the euro region aged 15 and older transfer 3,000 euros into a European central bank of digital wallet. Morgan Stanley says that this is a bear case using 3,000 euros as an amount because it was mentioned by ECB policymakers as a theoretical cap for citizens to hold. Oh God, that's just scary. Quote, this could theoretically reduce euro area total deposits defined as households and non-financial corporations deposits by 837 billion euros or 8%. Smaller eurozone countries such as Greece, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia would be hit the hardest. In these countries, converting 3,000 euros would be equivalent to 22 to 51% of household deposits and 17 to 30% of total deposits. Like the majority of major central banks, the ECB is researching the implications of a central bank digital currency with the threat 
to bank deposits often highlighted as one of the potential pitfalls. Should consumers choose to use the digital euro for everyday spending, depleted bank deposits would hamper banks' ability to lend money as loans, mortgages, and so on. ECB President Christine Lagarde, the felon, said in March that a digital euro is likely to be launched within four years. How is this any freaking different? How come Steve Hankey isn't bitching about this? Why, why is he bitching about something else at El Salvador whose economy does not affect one flying rat's ass of the rest of the world, whereas this shit affects a whole lot? But yet, David Gerard and Steve Hankey isn't worried about the depletion of euros. No, sirree, it's fine taking euros out of Latvia and shoving it up into Brussels. That's just absolutely fine. You know, what's really going on here is the attack by central banks and foreign, gov- foreign and domestic governments on the retail banking sector. If you don't get it, I don't know what to do. Retail banks, and I mean, I'm talking Wells Fargo, may survive. <clears throat> Bank of America may survive. Chase Bank may survive. But your local bank, like, uh, like up here in the panhandle of Texas, uh, we have a, a lot of banks called Happy State Bank. Nope, not going to survive. Why? Because if this kind of shit happens to them, then we've get, we get like a CBDC, like a, a, a digital dollar that is controlled by the Federal Reserve rather than me being able to deposit my money that I get. I would, I would have to get it over to the Federal Reserve Bank and do business with them. And I really wouldn't have a reason to do business with Happy State Bank. So guess what happens to Happy State Bank? Not so fucking happy. It goes into unhappy, not state bank because it ends up getting sold for, I don't know, fast food restaurants, all their branches I could see turning into Taco Bells. That's what's going on here. And it's going on around the world. There is, I mean, and this is what's so funny. We might find some very strange bedfellows in the next couple of years while this crap continues and while the smaller retail banks figure out that they are going to go bye-bye. They are not going to be making loans. They are not going to be able to make, you know, have deposits. They're not going to be able to charge rent on safety deposit boxes. They're not going to be able to employ all their people. They're, everything goes away for retail banks. And like I said, Wells Fargo may survive because they're huge and they have a seat at the table. But there's a lot of banks in the United States and specifically if you get to it, a whole shit ton of banks around the world that do not have a seat at the table. What does that mean? It means they're gonna go bye-bye. So the strange bedfellows that I mentioned might be these very same banks, maybe. Maybe we should be just as worried as getting our local banks to accept Bit or to go through Bitcoin adoption and custody, especially in Texas. Now that any any Texas chartered bank can custody Bitcoin, you better start doing it, or you're gonna lose. You're gonna lose big because you, you if if they go digital for the U.S. dollar, it's gonna be the Fed. It ain't gonna be Happy State Bank. It ain't gonna be the Texas Tech Federal Credit Union. It ain't, it's not going to be any of these people. It's going to be the Fed. You're going to have one bank. So we might want to start making friends with our local retail banks. I'm just saying. Let's see. Do we have anything else? Morgan Stanley, speaking of, is set to uh, expand Bitcoin fund operations. And let's see here. Morgan Stanley's wealth management clients may soon have even more options for getting into uh, Bitcoin by the way, this is Jeff Benson writing it for Decrypt. <clears throat> New York digital investment grouper NYDIG uh, and FS Investments have filed paperwork with the SEC for a pooled investment fund aimed at clients of U.S. megabank Morgan Stanley. Such funds allow companies and or people to get exposure to Bitcoin's price without taking custody of the asset. That's just stupid, but whatever. The funds do that more or less by tracking the price of BTC and adding on a management fee. How's that just not make you just go, what? Why? Why? Let's read it again. The funds do this. Okay, let's read it this way. The funds are able to get exposure to to the Bitcoin price for customers more or less by tracking the price of BTC and adding a management fee. Wow. 
that's a hell of a way to make money now, isn't it? Honestly, dude, I swear to God. Anyway, uh, let's see. Uh, according to the SEC filing, Morgan Stanley will receive certain placement and servicing fee with respect to clients. It refers to the issuer, the FSD, uh, the FS NYDIG Institutional Bitcoin Fund LP would be the fourth Morgan Stanley linked fund that provides institutional clients portfolios, some, uh, uh, some exposure to cryptocurrency, and the second from NYDIG and FS Investments. Morgan Stanley offered the first Bitcoin funds in March, including the FS NYDIG Select Fund, the Galaxy Bitcoin Fund LP, and the Galaxy Institutional Bitcoin Fund LP. It was the first major U.S. bank to do so, though the funds have high barriers to entry, with the minimum investment for the former two set at $25,000. It's $5 million to buy into the Galaxy Institutional Bitcoin Fund LP. As evidenced by its tagline, NYDIG has been even more active on the crypto front. In May, it partnered with Fidelity National Information Services, or FIS, to announce a way for ordinary bank customers to buy Bitcoin with in their own accounts. What we're doing is making it simple for everyday Americans and corporations to be able to buy Bitcoin through their existing banking relationships, Patrick Sells, head of bank solutions at NYDIG, told CNBC at the time. That offering has yet to hit Main Street. Wall Street has a head start. So just letting you know, uh, yet a fourth fund uh, by Morgan Stanley has been offered. It's the second one by NYDIG and FS Investments. I I don't know what you know. I don't know what to tell you about this. This shit's just going to happen. I honestly don't have an opinion on NYDIG yet. I kind of want to lean to the positive, but I'm you know we've we've had our hearts broken so many times before that it's hard to go woohoo. Anyway, listen guys, it is well over an hour. I don't want to keep you too much longer. Um, I'll try to figure out this whole Apple iPod or iTunes business or yeah, podcast business and see what the hell's going on there. I'm not promising anything in the short term simply because I don't know what I'm going to come up against uh, when it comes to customer service for podcasting at Apple. God only knows. But if you want to listen to the podcast and you have been listening to it on Apple iTunes, although you won't hear this if, if you are, there are other places you can go to SoundCloud, which is what the people that host the podcast for me, um, and and just get it direct from there. You can always look for scan my Twitter feed. Uh, Monday through Friday is when I drop the announcement. I have a link to the iTunes um, podcast, and then I also will have a link in a tweet to the sound direct to the uh, episode in the SoundCloud. I usually make that right after I upload it. So you might look for it here. Well, okay, that's just dumb, isn't it? <laughs> Don't look for it. It's gonna be up before you can look for it. Anyway, look, hey, listen, I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.